hello and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Solving Problems with Technology on HXGN Radio. I'm your host, Josh Cranfill, and today we're going to be talking about one of the most underrated aspects of digital transformation, which is user adoption. Many projects die in the user adoption stage. It's something that is definitely you can learn about over time. And, and it's something that these guys at Corbin's Electric are, are ex- experts in. So in this episode, I'm speaking with J.D. Martin. J.D. is VP and partner at Corbin's Electric down in Phoenix, Arizona. And Nate Unruh, who is business solutions manager at Knox Innovations, also down in Phoenix. With us is Jeff Wakefield. Jeff is Hexagon Exalt Solutions continuous improvement expert. And with that, guys, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Josh. We're excited for this discussion. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the topic today is user adoption. Um, My first question, what have you learned from this experience? Obviously, you're you're through, you know, six, seven years of this now. Um, So anything that we can start the, the discussion on as far as what are the biggest lessons learned? How do you approach end users? Uh, Not only after you've built something because obviously you've used them we've we've talked in previous episodes about gathering requirements but how do you approach end users before and after you're, you've actually developed something that's going to solve a problem with them uh, using technology yeah good question um i'm going to graduate this question so what we thought we were doing gosh six years ago is that how long we've been using this uh well we've been betting it out seven years ago um what we thought we were doing is just replacing um, some of our paper forms with with digital ones, right? We thought we were solving a solution using technology um, or solving a problem with technology as a solution. What we what we realized after going down this road and having some success, even within the first few months, is that this was bigger than us trying to use a technology solution to solve a problem, we were actually influencing the behaviors um, that we wanted out of our people through the process that we have created. Well, we've even graduated beyond that. We, we're looking at it kind of holistically now. We are actually solving problems with processes. We just happen to be using a technology platform in order to do that. So we're kind of looking at this holistically as like we're solving problems. We are standardizing solutions. Um, these solutions have to be scalable. Um, they have to be, um, you know, intuitively understood by the users. Uh, and then that's when we get into like user adoption. Okay, so how do you, how do you get people bought in and start, you know, using the thing that you create? Right. I'm sure we're going to get into some of those details. Yeah. Yeah. And I, one of the things that kind of first comes to mind too, is there's a big, I guess, separation uh, when you're talking about implementing user adoption for uh, whether you're talking about a new process. um, Right. So if I have a, right, an application or a digital solution and I'm looking to replace an outdated solution that is already in place, but we're mostly just upgrading the technology used, adding some little things in here and there on the process. That is a different situation from a 
releasing something over a new process, a complete redesign, and we're changing all kinds of behaviors of these individuals. So we're not just changing the entry point and the technology used, we're actually changing the behaviors and the processes. And a lot of times when you take a look at that and you know, when you're doing a digital transformation, you're oftentimes doing both, right? It's very few times are you taking an existing process that you love and all you're doing is converting the paper process to a digital format. Most of the time when you get down and you start designing a digital workflow over top of that, you're changing the workflow too. You're changing the behaviors. You know, you have new um, opportunities to cut some of the fat out of the process, change up who is involved and really make sure all departments are bought in there. So differentiating the two, as we said, like, the new process and new behaviors is really the most common one. And that's usually where you see the biggest issues with user adoption. So I think that's where we'll be phrasing a lot of the conversations we're talking about today, but the other direction does make it a little bit more difficult or make it a little bit easier. And at Corbin's we've done both. We've, we have uh, implemented a, a digital workflow, uh, workflow through exalt, for example, for a process, that didn't exist. The process didn't exist at all. And we said, hey guys, here's a solution. Well, one of the problems sometimes with doing that is the 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 users or the people doing that process didn't realize there was a problem. And they're like, oh, what's this? What's this thing? I thought I thought we I thought it was fine. Um, and then we've also um, taken processes that already exist on paper or maybe on a different platform and have redone them. Uh, in a way that, you know, after gathering requirements and checking with stakeholders uh, is going to be more valuable to us because either it's streamlining or uh, it's scalable um, or it's standardized. Um, so, yeah, we've gone through the whole spectrum. We've done both things with success, uh, you know, and failures on both ends of the spectrum. So how do you, let's go back to the beginning. Um, how and when do you approach the actual end users and, uh, you, you know, is there a standing meeting? Is there, uh, I know you have various people who ex who are experts in, in different parts of your business that are actually developing these digital workflows, but how do you actually approach those end users in each scenario that you just described? Yeah, I think I'll let Nate get into the details. I want to talk about the culture of Corbin, like how we even get to a point to identify, um, that there's a solution we want to go implement is because we actually have a culture, uh, a lean culture that's focused on um, eliminating waste and continuous improvement. So we're constantly challenging our people or asking them to challenge themselves on like, is there a better way to do the thing that we're doing right now? Um, and we ask them really simply one way to get the conversation started is, hey, what bugs you about, you know, X, Y, Z process? And sometimes people are really honest and they go, oh my gosh, where do I start, right? And they go naming off all the things, right? Uh, and some people are like, no, no, it's fine. I, I like the process. Um, so basically somebody has to, the, the like key shareholder in that process, the one who's responsible for the output of that process is usually the one going, hey, I think we need to look at this. And then we'll get various people in the process along the way. Um, let's say there's like, 50 people who would be the end users. We're not getting all 50 together to talk about sure. what they think is the best idea. We'll get a few people who are 
uh, you know, they're, they're, they're leaders or maybe they're influential in some way, or maybe they're just really, really freaking good at that process. They're the subject matter experts, right? Um, or some other people have some type of skin in the game or, or responsible for the outcome. Um, those are the ones we want to focus on initially before we go to beta, which we'll talk about later, you know, testing out the, the requirements. But Nate, what are some of the, what are some of the things you do when you get these key stakeholders in a room? Um, yeah. What does that look like? Yeah. And, and you know, kind of just branching from where, what JD was talking about with the culture, right? That it, it generates immediate buy-in for those individuals, right? So when it, when it comes from those guys, when they're the ones driving in at first and it's not, Hey, we're trying to, force a solution down right if these if the idea comes from say like a president or ceo and then it's just thrown at the operations team as a solution to their problem you have to go do this right now obviously having an executive level backing will work in some scenarios but if the operations team isn't bought in on that the long-term user adoption plan is going to fail right and so when we're talking about stakeholder involvement and what that looks like, that's why that lean culture and having those guys bought in on that process in the first place is key as they're they're willing to drive that and they're saying, hey, what can I do to help support this? What does it look like for rollout? What, what do you need from me? Do you need guys from my team? Do you need more uh, department involvement? How can I get involved? And all of a sudden when they're the ones driving some of that, it makes any you know technology developer it makes their job pretty easy because you're you're now a team trying to solve a problem instead of hey here's a solution that i want you to um force down and so you know people always ask us hey do you need like executive level backing not necessarily right um again it will depend on the uh scale and the scope of the process that you're trying to roll out but if you have those key individuals that um and again you know when we talk about this one of the benefits uh, that we've seen at Corbin's is Corbin's has a very well-structured org chart in terms of each division and each sector of our work has a key individual that is involved and then they have key individuals that they can go after. It can be a struggle when you're saying, hey, let's roll out something out to the field support team, but that means talking to six or seven individuals and getting them all bought in. That can be hard. So when you have a wide org chart and you don't have a couple key individuals you can go to to really own and champion that process it gets difficult so as much as you can have those stakeholders involved near the beginning if you don't have if you have too wide of a berth to roll that out it can be difficult now when we're talking about kind of geographical and other implementations right we touched on this a lot in the earlier uh, episodes on requirement gathering and how to talk to those individuals and how that all works in. But that is really the key here. We, if you don't have those stakeholders involved right at the beginning of the process, if they don't have an ownership in the requirements, if they haven't vetted that out, if they're not bought in, it's gonna be impossible to get any user adoption. Um, and if you start addressing who's gonna be doing it, the stakeholders at the end of the project, you've already failed because you know you're gonna to have to go back, look at the requirements again, and honestly start from scratch a lot of times yeah, yeah so, i think so i think uh nate's nate's okay. develop oh sorry josh i think nate's development team can't want the solution more than the team who is going to value that you know you yeah. can't it'd be Absolutely. the tail wagging the dog right it's 
Uh, and sometimes they actually see the value, you know, an ACE team will see the value and go, man, I think this is going to be, we can make a really cool solution for you guys. But if the users and the stakeholders and the champion of that process, you know, they're like, eh, I don't know, it, you know, it'll, it'll fall flat because it won't get promoted. Right. Yeah. And that's and, the direction. We see it all the time, right? We see that all the time. You have one enthusiastic person. We actually had to get to the place where we say, hey, we're not going to write a proposal for you unless you have your stakeholder buy-in and understand who those stakeholders are, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so if I can repeat back to you, it's create a culture of continuous improvement where you're able to drive ownership as wide as possible away from the even the CEO, right? And, and then it's understanding your org chart. It's understanding who is liable for a particular process, who cares the most, and then within those organizations, who are your influential people that can actually drive that culture wide outside of outside of the even executive uh, understanding of, of perhaps the business at that level. Um, so, so that's awesome, perfect answer. So now that um, we've kind of gone over that after, so, so that's the first part of adoption, is getting their buy-in, but then once you actually create that workflow, which might be, you know, a week of development, or it might be two months, depending on the web, you know, the breadth and the depth of that particular work workflow, what does it look like then? How do you get users to adopt it? What is your, you know, maybe you have a user acceptance testing among a small group and then you, you, you deploy it wide. What does that look like? Yeah, we've at Corbin's, we've done, um, We've done it a few different ways depending on what the process is. I mean, we have scores and scores of workflows um, that we've, we've implemented over the last five years. But let's let me give you an anecdotal, a personal anecdotal um, experience from our very first workflow, our very first app that we launched, which was our time collection. It was our field time collection, right? It tends to be one of the biggest issues in construction collecting. Uh, the time from the field and other information that goes along with that phase codes, hours, um, you know, production, production tracking, log. yeah, all that log stuff that you want to get in a timely manner. So um, that was the first solution we worked on. Okay, so we said, okay, how are we going to roll this out to, at that time we had 40 foremen and, you know, 150 field guys. They're like, how, how are we going to roll this out to that many people all at once? Well, um, I didn't know what I was doing. I, like I was in charge of implementing this stuff, right? So I had, you know, helped build this solution, uh, and I was responsible for rolling it out. So I thought about it, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna. I asked some people, hey, if I were to, if I were to do this, some people in our organization, I want to do it with a small group, right? A beta test, if you will. Who is somebody that I should get? You know, I'm asking superintendents, I'm asking some project managers, like who do you think would be a good person and uh, you know, I was able to field that out, and it came down to this one guy, Andy. So, Andy, if you if you hear this, I love you. Um, but he's our he's one of our superintendents. He's a Sasquatch of a man, and I mean that with that is a term of endearment. Okay, um, <laughs> he's he's just a big Harley riding, you know, uh, uh, construction electrician dude. Um, he holds an iPad in his hand like I hold an iPhone. You know what I mean? He's got just giant mitts and and he's he's been with us for um, 25 years, maybe maybe more now, and uh, you know he's he's been around. He's uh, he's um, 
a salty old dog, a, a Navy CB. Like he, he's, he's seen or he's been around. Anyway, I said, okay, if I can get him a superintendent, and then he had, I think, uh, five foremen that worked for him at that time. I brought them in um, to show them what we were doing. He, it was actually ended up being a good mix of foremen because he had a couple guys that were old salty dogs like him who were used to doing stuff with pen and paper. And then he had a couple young foremen who grew, basically grew up with iPads. You know, they grew up with technology. And then a guy that was, you know, this Gen Y guy who's like, you know, kind of in between. Yeah, he had a technology introduced early, you know, in his life, but he wasn't, he wouldn't be considered like an early adopter. So anyway, brought him in and said, hey guys, I laid it out the context. Hey, what we're doing, we're switching from using paper forms, because that's literally what we were doing, paper forms, to uh, using iPads, which they had never used before. They were using laptops to get their emails and things like that. And I kind of gave them all the context. Here's what we want to do. Um, showed them the workflow. Here's how it works. Here's what happens when you click on this. Here's how you add people. Here's how you spread time. All the, all the things, right? And they were like, okay, cool. They didn't ask a lot of questions during the thing. And then at the end, I was like, okay, so what do you guys think? Questions, concerns, um, what do you what do you want to see different? How, how do you think it's going to work? And a couple of guys raise their hand. They're like, I don't know about this, man. I could do it faster on paper. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you're absolutely right. I didn't fight back with them because it was true. They could fill out their time faster on paper because the paper was just a simple little matrix with boxes, right? You list your guys down uh, the left-hand column. You list your phase codes across the top, and you plot the hours, and you're done. I said, yep, you're absolutely right. I anticipated this. Um, I actually had a copy of one of their time cards. I redacted the information to, you know, um, to protect the innocent. <laughs> uh, and I showed them why, although it's faster, why this information was incomplete. Uh, they, they wrote down the job number. Sorry, they wrote down the job name. It was some cutesy little name that we use for the project. You know, some, some, some nickname we use for the project, no project number. Um, they had listed the guy's names. It was all first names. Okay. Not very helpful when it goes to payroll because they have no idea. You know, we have, we have like 15 uh, Jose's that work for us. Right. So like, which Jose is this? Jose H. Okay, great. You just narrowed it down to five guys, you know? So, uh, and then they can't read their chicken scratch. Is that a four, an eight or a nine? I can't tell. Well, guess what payroll is going to end up doing? They're going to end up guessing or, or yeah. getting that number to whatever it needs to be so it adds up to 40 hours for that guy for the week, right? Um, so you can imagine all the things, all the things, right? And once I was able to explain that to them and show them their example of their fast time card, which was incomplete, missing information, you know, unreadable, they started to get a, uh, okay, all right, I get it, I get it. Now, fast forward a couple weeks or a couple months, um, not all of those guys on Andy's team stayed with us. Some of them chose to leave, okay? And that's because they looked at this adoption of technology going, yeah, this ain't, this ain't for me. I don't think I'm going to be able to survive here, right? Fair um, but what it also did was create an environment that where young people who are used to technology thrived. And they, you know, they saw this as like an opportunity to really – you know, come into their own strength. So, um, so what we did, we sent the, that superintendent and those five foremen out and had them like beta test this. We 
have them send in their daily reports. We have them do it on paper also, just so we could, you know, make sure that all the information is coming through correctly. We obviously had to test the process through payroll. That's a different department that had to, you know, validate all the information and make sure it worked. Um, and then once we felt comfortable and worked out some of the kinks, we certainly got their their feedback throughout this process. Hey, so you don't like that wording? You you didn't know what that meant, so you filled in something that was incoherent. Okay, let's let's talk about what should it say, because these guys. When I explained to them that these guys were setting the tone for the rest of the of the the company, you know, they they felt important. That's good, and they were. Um, so they felt the level of responsibility for their coworkers. So that's good. That's what we wanted, and it helped them to um, put some more thought into not just for themselves, but like for the guys they work with, how could this process be better? Um, we took it one step further, Josh. We, I, this is totally shameless. And I don't really care about this. We asked Exalt to send us some shirts because that's a platform we use um, to send us some t-shirts. We went and co-branded them. We put our, our, our logo on them also, and they were shirts that said Mobilizer on it. And we literally gave them to anybody who had any idea, whether it was a good idea that got implemented or not. We gave it to these foremen and we said, dude, wear this. You can now put app developer on your resume, right? And that's how we kind of started getting buzzed where people are like, ooh, yeah, oh, this is cool. Oh, okay, great. And when they saw their ideas get put into action and the thing that they use, it solidified, you know, and entrench them into the process almost to the point where they started throwing out ideas that were like kind of pie in the sky type of ideas. We kind of had to like throttle back a little bit, but that was, that was, I was totally willing to swing the pendulum that far to get some user adoption. So anyway, it's a long explanation of like one anecdotal example, like how we got oh, user adoption. And, and I think it's great, by the way, Jeff and I have worked in situations where, um, you know, there's these large and these large organizations, 40 operating companies, you have a program of continuous improvement, you're liable to save this amount of money over the next five years, right? So they have different ways of gathering those ideas. If you gather ideas from people and they never hear back about their idea that they submitted, they'll never submit an idea again, yeah. right? And so I think it's a, actually a huge point. So now I want to talk know. about something else like the next step of this process, iterative process is, um, that's great. You could have a totally rock solid, airtight process. It's going to add value to the business. Um, I anticipated where the failure point was going to be, and that was going to be in payroll. Um, for example, we roll it out to the masses, right? We roll it out to the 40 different foremen and the six other superintendents and say, here's a process I want you to use. We've already tested it. We know that it works. Well, if right. you get just even a couple guys who are like, no, 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 this is bull crap. I don't want to do it that way. I'm going to continue to send in my, my piece of paper and drop it off to payroll or send them an email with my timesheet or send them a text or a smoke signal or I don't know, however other way they wanted to send it in. If payroll allowed them to go around the process, not do it through the process we developed in Exalt, you know, to continue to do the old habits, well, you just undermine the entire integrity of all the things that we're trying to do. So I had to also go get payroll on board and say, hey, guys, here's, here's the value. For you. They already knew what the value is. They didn't want to go hand jam a bunch of information into our accounting system. They wanted to be able to import it, you know, maybe 
look it over and then push it into payroll. Um, so they were already on board. They're like, yeah, if I don't have to hand jam this stuff. So, but they would end up being the gatekeepers to this. You would think it'd be the foreman. No, I need the foreman to do the thing. And inevitably that wasn't very hard because the thing that I wanted for them, which is to fill out their daily report was associated with the thing that they wanted, which was, this is how you get paid. This is how you submit your time. That's an easy, that's an easy, you know, way to get them on board. Payroll though, you know, you go, Hey guys, you're the gatekeeper of this thing. And if it, if you let it get undermined the entire thing, it's a house of cards that falls apart. Cause as soon as you let one guy who, uh, you know, you let go around the process and then other people start picking up on that. Well, now we got a real mess on our hands, right? So you also, you also have to go identify who the gatekeepers are, who are going to maintain the structural integrity of the thing that you're trying to implement. Yeah. And right. And so, and kind of generalizing that a bit, right? So applying that same practice to other rollouts and stuff, it's right. Those are the individual stakeholders that you really have to make sure that, right, they're at the right level where they have the ownership and they have the authority to be able to empower their teams to do that. For example, right, that was painful for the payroll team, right? They got calls on Friday and they are like, hey, can you put in my time for this week? I need to make sure my guys get paid. And they had to say no, right? They're a support team and they had to say no. You have to send it in through this application and you have to get your time in. That's painful for them. Right. And if they don't have the backing of their manager, whoever they report to or the company as a whole, that's not going to end very well for them. Right. And so there has to be. So when you're looking at the impact of a process, you have to look at each group that looks at you have to find identify those stakeholder champions. And you have to make sure that they have the authority and they believe in it enough that they can enforce those behaviors to make that process a success. You hear a lot of failures of processes, and we've done this even where we do a beta test and then we do like a half rollout, right? Where you accept the old way and you have the new way. Well, whenever you open that up to interpretation and hey guys, you can use it when you want to and I promise you'll like it, they're not gonna use it, right? humans yeah, are hu right humans are right we're we love pattern we love doing everything the same right we uh, love we our love, habits we yeah. love our habits right and that's and that's just a human that's just a human thing to do and so how we approach that the other side of the coin is you can't just flip the switch and just roll something out and expect it to work right that's just setting yourself up for failure so that's really where that beta testing and that small group user adoption is so important because you get yourself you get that's the best you can do right you can't half roll it out and half not you won't get the user or the feedback that you want you can't just flip the switch and roll it out and hope everyone's happy because you'll fail almost every time. So the kind of, right, the trade-off there is, hey, let's get a small group of users. And the key here is you have to balance this base, based on the scale and the geographical challenges of your company, right? So if you have divisions that operate extremely different all over the place, you have to make sure that your beta test might be five or six different groups. Right. Now, if you're rolling a process out to a department that's pretty siloed, it's they all act together, well, you might only need one or two guys to do that. So it's going to look different for each process that you roll out, for each situation that you look at, for each 
and how your company and org chart and divisions are set up in order to have a successful rollout, but some sort of beta testing and buy-in has to take place so you avoid both of those extreme situations that'll get you in trouble. And a nod back to our other podcast, right, when we talk about gathering requirements was one of the topics, right? Um, the design was one of the topics. If you gather the right requirements and your design is good with a focus on the user, the user experience, um, and you give people context on why this thing is important and the value that it's going to add, and you get the key stakeholders and champions and other gatekeepers lined up, user adoption should be pretty easy. I say that. I'm. This is tongue-in-cheek, right? I'm like, I say, like, all those things are super easy to do. No, it takes some coordination. Yeah. yeah, it takes some coordination, that's for sure. For sure. We've seen it all done wrong, right? Um, and so if, I mean, the, the, the hidden message is there that this is all user adoption. So our previous episodes yeah. on solution design and gathering requirements and everything else, it, it actually is all user adoption because the whole thing is is smoked without it, right? Yeah, um, you yeah. could have the you could have the best requirements, the best design. You know, this process is going to add a ton of value to your organization. And then if users don't use it, if user adoption isn't there, all of that was for nothing. Right. Yeah, so and I wanted like to, that last link in the chain. It doesn't matter how strong the rest of the chain is. This last link, if right. that's weak and it breaks, well, now you just got a broken chain. Right. Yeah, and I wanted to touch on real quick um, that last part of JD's kind of story there, where he was talking about how he went with those stakeholders, right, and talked to them about the pros and cons and other things like that. That's a really important part when we talk about getting champions and buy-in, right? That sounds easy, but a lot of times, especially if you're trying to change a process that's been there for a while, that can be pretty difficult. And um, JD mentioned a couple things that we make sure to focus on every time. One is context and providing them the correct context. And this will change depending on your audience that you're talking about. If you're talking to an executive level, you're talking about upstream um, data visualization and what the outputs of the system are. If you're talking to a foreman or a field individual that's entering in this information, you're talking about, hey, this will make it so your life is easier. You won't have to make as many phone calls, yada, yada, right? So it's the same message, same context, but you're personalizing it for the individual that you're talking to. And that's how you're going to get that buy-in because as JD said, it's not going to be faster, but that's not what we're trying to solve. We're trying to solve correct accurate information we're getting the same thing every time so when you change the lens of how they're looking at it it's a lot easier to get that buy-in the other thing with that is the in-person training that jd was talking about now this is where the scalability aspect you really have to personalize this for your individual company oh, I know a lot of times this, yeah, yeah a lot of times what we've seen is for those individual champions and stakeholders that we've been talking about that it's really hard to just give them that and say, hey, go for it, right? They need to own it. They need to understand it at a core level. And that usually means drilling into them exactly what that is. Now, of course, if they're involved on the requirements gathering and the building side of things, that's going to be pretty easy. If, but if they aren't, for whatever reason, then having that in person, let's discuss this, let's go over what this is poke it apart, right? Challenge it as much as you can because you're, you know that they're going to have to go out there and be the champion for that. So you're, they're now an extension of your team, right? And so if they're not a hundred percent 
on board and you don't have that in-person training, then that's great. Because the fact of the matter is, no matter how many people you have on a process development team, they can't go train everybody in person. And there's going to be at least, you know, depending on the scale of your organization, 100 to 600 people to 1,000 people that will touch your application and process without having you there to walk them through it. And so if you don't create a web of champions and masters of these processes, the idea is that will filter down, right? It's kind of a top-down, trickle-down approach where you train a couple champions and then they're able to train their next set of champions. Then they're able to train their next set of champions. And if they don't have the context to provide to those individuals, if they're like, hey, you got to do this process. And they're like, well, this, they start asking all these questions. And they're like, hey, we just told we had to do it. Yeah. The Why, man? Start Why do we have to do this? And they go, oh, that's just because that's what that's what the CEO wants. You know, yep. that's not a good that's not a good reason, guys. So the second that attitude starts, that's when your user adoption starts to fail. You will always just see that you might get some right that forced adoption. You might see that be successful for one to two months, but the second there's an opportunity, there's a chink in the armor, whatever that looks like, they'll hit it and all of a sudden all the work you did right will kind of go out the window so small (laughs) small thing there but really it's that i guess the in making sure that's an important part of the process is uh key to that kind of success have you ever then had to delay introducing a new process or a change because of how user adoption was was approached meaning maybe you didn't set some of the things up you know, in the earlier stages mm-hmm. and had a false start and yeah. all the time. Yeah. yeah. Beta, beta yeah. testing is painful, man. Um, I'll tell you that right now. That's, that's always one of the more, more difficult parts of this. Uh, tell me a quick story about our, our, uh, kit tracker. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good example. Uh, we, we had a kit tracker. We were, we're creating kits of material blueprints, all the things like that. And yeah. all of these were it's kitted of, together. Uh, Prefab material, tools, right. and information. That's what yep. consisted of a kit. Yep. And so we are we are tracking these kits from the modeling prefab all the way out to delivery out in the field and install. Right. And so there was all kinds of departments involved, six or seven departments involved. We got some key stakeholders together and we are, felt pretty good about the concept and we went to go roll it out. Well, this one was kind of difficult to get a beta test group together um, for various reasons. And so we flipped the switch, right? Which is exactly what I told you guys not to do. And this is a great example of we immediately felt the pain of what that looked like. One, we didn't have the buy-in with every single department that needed to implement that. And so we saw one to two months of success and then it kind of fell off a cliff. And what wasn't happening is we didn't have a feedback cycle going. We weren't. And so these users were getting frustrated that they were trying to implement it and all it was doing was slowing them down. So slowly they found other avenues and they started working around it. Some people were using it wrong because the information they needed to input, the fields didn't exist for those. So they're just putting them in other random fields. Um, Some people uh, stopped using it altogether, which created... Um, you know, in the flow of information, these kits were started to get built out and then they just stopped and they would be in limbo forever. And anyway, just hosing up data, wasn't adding a ton of value. Sometimes we had uh, stakeholders who were totally bought in, like the department leaders were bought in, but what they failed to do is cascade the importance of 
you know, the process and the context to their people, the ones who are actually be using it. Yep. And so uh, the end part of that story is we kind of gathered the troops and identified and said, okay, where do we go wrong here? And like JD said, the that main identification there was we did not focus on providing that context down, right? So we had some initial buy-in on some of these guys, but they didn't have the context to be able to go tell their individuals, hey, this is why we're doing this. This is how it is supposed to work, et cetera, and provide, I guess, a more approachable feedback loop uh, back to our team so we could go adjust some of that. And so the second time we released that, a much different language, a much different approach on how we did that. We honestly made a few changes, but not a lot of changes. It was more just clarification on what that looks like. And the second rollout was um, really successful and we had a, a lot of great um, use out of that and saw the impact right away. So was that as a result of, of getting better communication driven down in that kind of requirements gathering stage in that uh, here's the problem we're trying to solve, here's the context of the problem we're trying to solve, um, or was that just a shift uh, that happened because your culture was evolving or maybe a combination of both? Yeah, probably probably both, Jeff, to be honest. Like in the in the, the culture we have of continuous improvement, yeah, we learned from that failed attempt on that kit tracker. It forced us to go back to the gatherments requiring section and kind of tighten up you know, and became an iterative process, just the gatherings requirements, you know, mm -hmm. side of it. So, yeah, we're constantly learning from our failures. Fail failing isn't bad. Um, repeating failures is bad, right? You, uh, you repeat failures. You do, you, you have a failure once. Okay, that was a mistake. You do it twice. Well, now it's, now it's a decision, right? <laughs> uh, and now you got a bigger problem on your hands, so. And, and kind of tying into culture a little bit more too, um, you know, you, you talk about the fix what bugs you type of approach, you know, and, and getting those ideas from, from bottom up. Um, as that culture has evolved, how has your user adoption and your ability to get people on board with change um, been affected? Has it become, you know, you know, what's that journey been like as people's ideas have been transformed into reality has that made overcoming change a lot easier oh yeah absolutely i mean um when we're talking about um i mean that's that's really the key right is all of a sudden we have right our stakeholders are driving the adoption and they're coming up with the plan of hey here's the individuals that i've already picked out i know who we need to do it and i know how impactful this is going to be so they're driving us on how quickly we can do that what that looks like it completely changes the game uh for not only the process development team but also uh for the other for the field now we're working as a team and it's not you know our team bugging you on trying to get someone there, right? They're just as excited about the solution and they had their key individuals involved early because they know that's also a key. They've seen how that works. They've seen the impact of that. And so they're now in part of um, helping us uh, promote that early user adoption where, right, if, if, you, if you can get user adoption at the process level, no matter what you're rolling out technology side, uh, will be successful if everyone buys in on a you know a process map or whatever that looks like uh and so that's why you know we talk about having the buy-in at the requirements gathering end 
that's the key, right? You get a bunch of warriors, right? People that feel like, hey, I'm an app developer, right? I had a key piece in that and that's why this is personalized and this is great. And that creates little warriors out um, no matter where they're at and no matter what part of the process they're in. Yeah, one of our friends um, who we'll have on one of these podcasts here pretty soon used to say this, look, this is process first and technology as an enabler. So what it means is you're just using technology to serve the best possible process, right? Um, which I think people like. And, well said. you know, kind of with that thinking too, you mentioned, you know, there's people with, with resistance to change. Um, you know, how do you, you know, kind of give someone that message? Maybe if they didn't get it before, um, you know, typically it's the what's in it for me. Uh, how does that typically come across and, and is approached when you do have one of those resistors? Um, I'm happy to say, Jeff, that doesn't happen with us. I mean, we, I guess we kind of ironed out all the wrinkles early on, mm -hmm. you know, six years ago with us. And I don't have that problem right now. I know there are some, some contractors that I, I know who are using technology as a solution and they are kind of being held hostage by their users. Like for example, another a contractor, their, their foreman are dictating um, the, the usage and the implementation. And it's kind of, it's kind of backwards that way. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have that problem. Uh, we got traction early on. We saw success. What we did, I think that was different than a lot of people besides our, our culture just generally being, being, good and inclusive and, and, you know, focus on uh, technology and solutions and things like that is we also celebrated and focused the bright spots, like where there was success, we made a big stink about it. I mean, we told people about it. We, we put it on our internal blogs. We put it on our newsletters. We celebrated it in our morning huddles. Um, we gave out t-shirts, right? So we kind of made a big deal about it and gave it some hype. Um, and that worked. Yeah. And that's, and that's maybe the last thing to, to tie a bow on this that we can cover. I know that you guys have had success, um, using technology to pr promote technology and even, even now using marketing to pr promote your internal user adoption, um, and to make that easier. So why don't you get into that a little bit? What's been successful? What have you learned? Uh, I know you, you know, you have your training videos. You also now have some newer marketing videos on how these things work, why you're deploying them and so forth. Uh, but it seems to have been a big enabler for you if you want to uh, comment on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've, again, really with the training aspect of things, it's a huge part of user adoption. Already talked about that kind of in-person context building portion for the champions. But then there's that second part of that is making sure uh, you have continued success, right? And six months, a year down the road, what is that going to look like when maybe the champions have, don't have that at the top of their priority list anymore, right? You don't have somebody checking in on that. How do you continue that new employees, new parts of, um, how do you ensure that they are still just as bought in, they have the same context, they understand what's going on. And so we've kind of dealt with this in a couple different ways. One, some of this stuff we kind of build into process integration on the new hire, right? We make sure the ownership is on 
their managers in terms of training those new individuals on whatever process that is. So if it's a field process, our superintendents own that. We make sure they are continued experts in those different processes. So whenever there's an issue or a new employee on their team, they are the ones that can go solve it. And it's not some high level you know, executive that's telling them to do this. It's their manager, somebody that they understand, someone that understands what they're going through. So that's the first part of it. But then we also provide some other material, specifically training videos. And uh, one of the biggest impacts is a training video should not just cover the logistics of this is how the app works, this is what it does. It also needs to cover some of that context. Now, you can't have a 20-minute video that de details all of that, so you have to find that balance of context and usability. But if you're able to get that in a digital format that's approachable of, hey, here's how you use it, here's some context, then that enables stakeholders and champions and other individuals on their team to be like, hey, see this as a starting point, let me know if you have any questions. But providing that context in those videos along with a kind of walkthrough user guide uh, is a great way to have something that's lasting that'll continue even when this um, the implementation and adoption piece gets a little bit um, out of the priority. Have you found a sweet spot, Nate, on those where and maybe, you know, obviously there's analytics, you could probably run behind it, but what's your sweet spot in terms of practical length of the video, depth of the video and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anything uh, over 10 minutes is an absolute no. <laughs> um, I, would I would say, say we try to keep it around. Honestly, like yeah. Yeah, it, it's quick hit. So if it's a huge process, we'll actually split those up now into smaller bite-sized chunks, right? So yeah. for example, if you have right our CRM, we split that up into contacts, companies, opportunity entry, right? Those are three parts of the system, but they're three separate things. And so we split them up into something that's approachable. Because, And the other thing is making sure that if you do have a longer video, making sure that you have timestamps for what the user will need. A lot of times yeah. they have one specific specific problem with the process. It's not like, I don't know how to do time entry. It's, I don't know what payroll does with this and what they're asking me at this specific part, right? What does spreading face codes look like? Okay, well you can, if that video is timestamped and um, archived correctly, then the user can jump to those positions. So even if it is a six or seven minute video, it's split up, right? So there's multiple ways to go about it, but making sure that they can get the information they need quick and accessible without drawing on for too long, then that's the important part. That's perfect. Yeah, it's funny. I've watched many, many of your, of your videos and I always go back and and remind myself about them if I'm about to be maybe talking to another company and, and I need to brush up on the uh, you know, the context there. So I, I would imagine it's been well adopted within within your group as well. All right, before we uh, conclude, is there anything we missed? Anything that uh, would be helpful to our listeners to, to add on to what we've already discussed? Um, no, I just want to reiterate, anybody listening to this who's, who's having a problem with user adoption, um, find a champion, celebrate, uh, focus on the bright spots. Um, um, if you're having a problem with user adoption, maybe you chose the wrong process to work on first. Maybe there's something 
uh, else that you can look at uh, to implement that could get some traction and have some smaller success um, that you can kind of build on. Um, but certainly you can call and reach out to Nate or myself and, you know, ping ideas off of us. That's a good point. So where can people learn more about you, JD, and Corbin's Electric, and Nate, more about Knox Innovations and the services you offer? Uh, yeah, corbinselectric.com is our website. It just got revamped uh, a few weeks ago. We're proud of it. It looks pretty cool. My contact information is on there. Just go to the, uh, uh, the crew section, um, and you'll find all about Corbin's Electric and how to get a hold of me. Yep. And then on the Knox Innovation side, same thing, um, website, knoxinnovations.com. Uh, that'll get you started on kind of what, what we're doing and the solutions we offer. And then uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to um, approach uh, probably both of us um, to get a hold of us. All right. Awesome. So thank you, guys. These are super intuitive and super useful for us. So uh, JD, Nate, Jeff. Thank you very much. Please, everybody, as you're listening, be sure to check out all the other episodes on podcast podcasts from across Hexagon at hxgnspotlight.com. Also on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and SoundCloud. So thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.